Chapter Five of the Life of Clara Barton, Volume One by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five Her Schools and Teachers. Clara Barton's education began at her cradle. She was not able to remember when she learned to read. When three years old, she had acquired the art of reading, and her lessons in spelling, arithmetic, and geography began in her infancy. Both of her sisters and her eldest brother were school teachers. Recalling their efforts, she said, I had no playmates, but in effect six fathers and mothers. They were a family of school teachers. All took charge of me, all educated me, each according to personal taste. My two sisters were scholars and artistic, and strove in that direction. My brothers were strong, ruddy, daring young men, full of life and business. Before she was four years old, she entered school. By that time, she was able to read easily and could spell words of three syllables. She told the story of her first schooling in an account which must not be abridged. My home instruction was by no means permitted to stand in the way of regular school, which consisted of two terms each year, of three months each. The winter term included not only the large boys and girls, but in reality the young men and young women of the neighborhood. An exceptionally fine teacher often drew the daily attendance of advanced scholars for several miles. Our district had this good fortune. I introduce with pleasure and with reverence the name of Richard Stone, a firmly set handsome young man of twenty-six or seven, of commanding figure and presence, combining all the elements of a teacher with a discipline never questioned. His glance of disapproval was a reprimand, his frown something he never needed to go beyond. The love and respect of his pupils exceeded even their fear. It was no uncommon thing for summer teachers to come twenty miles to avail themselves of the winter term of Colonel Stone, for he was a high militia officer, and at that young age was a settled man with a family of four little children. He had married at eighteen. I am thus particular in my description of him, both because of my childish worship of him and because I shall have occasion to refer to him later. The opening of his first term was a signal for the Barton family, and seated on the strong shoulders of my stalwart brother Stephen, I was taken a mile through the tall drifts to school. I have often questioned if in this movement there might not have been a touch of mischievous curiosity on the part of these not at all dull youngsters to see what my performance at school might be. I was, of course, the baby of the school. I recall no introduction to the teacher, but was set down among the many pupils in the by no means spacious room, with my spelling book and the traditional slate, 
from which nothing could separate me. I was seated on one of the low benches and sat very still. At length, the majestic schoolmaster seated himself and, taking a primer, called the class of little ones to him. He pointed the letters to each. I named them all and was asked to spell some little words, dog, cat, etc., whereupon I hesitatingly informed him that I did not spell there. Where do you spell? I spell in artichoke, that being the leading word in the three-syllable column in my speller. He good-naturedly conformed to my suggestion, and I was put into the artichoke class to bear my part for the winter and read and spell for the head. When, after a few weeks, my brother Stephen was declared by the committee to be too advanced for a common school and was placed in charge of an important school himself, my unique transportation devolved upon the other brother, David. No colts now, but solid waiting through the high New England drifts. The Reverend Mr. Mansour of the Episcopal Church of Leicester, Massachusetts, if I recollect aright, wisely comprehending the grievous inadaptability of the school books of that time, had compiled a small geography and atlas suited to young children, known as Mansour's Geography. It was a novelty as well as a beneficence, nothing of its kind having occurred to makers of the school books of that day. They seemed not to have recognized the existence of a state of childhood in the intellectual creation. During the winter, I had become the happy possessor of a Mensur's geography and atlas. It is questionable if my satisfaction was fully shared by others of the household. I required a great deal of assistance in the study of my maps, and became so interested that I could not sleep, and was not willing that others should, but persisted in waking my poor drowsy sister in the cold winter mornings to sit up in bed and by the light of a tallow candle help me to find mountains, rivers, counties, oceans, lakes, islands, isthmuses, channels, cities, towns, and capitals. The next May the summer school opened, taught by Miss Susan Torrey. Again, I write the name reverently, as gracing one of the most perfect of personalities. I was not alone in my childish admiration, for her memory remained a living reality in the town long years after the gentle spirit fled. My sisters were both teaching other schools, and I must make my own way, which I did, walking a mile with my one precious little schoolmate, Nancy Fitz. Nancy Fitz, the playmate of my childhood, the chum of laughing girlhood, the faithful, trusted companion of young womanhood, and the beloved life-friend that the relentless grasp of time has neither changed nor taken from me. On entering the wide-open door of the inviting schoolhouse, 
armed with some most unsuitable reader, a spelling book, geography, atlas, and slate, I was seized with an intense fear at finding myself with no member of the family near, and my trepidation became so visible that the gentle teacher, relieving me of my burden of books, took me tenderly on her lap and did her best to reassure and calm me. At length I was given my seat, with a desk in front for my atlas and slate, my toes at least a foot from the floor, and that became my daily happy home for the next three months. All the members of Clara Barton's household became her teachers, except her mother, who looked with interest, and not always with approval, on the methods of instruction practiced by the others. Captain Barton was teaching her military tactics. David was teaching her to ride horseback. Sally, and later Dorothy, established a kind of school at home and practiced on their younger sister, and Stephen contributed his share in characteristic fashion. Sarah Stone alone attempted nothing until the little daughter should be old enough to learn to do housework. My mother, like the sensible woman that she was, seemed to conclude that there were plenty of instructors without her, said Miss Barton. She attempted very little, but rather regarded the whole thing as a sort of mental conglomeration, and looked on with a kind of amused curiosity to see what they would make of it. Indeed, I heard her remark many years after that I came out of it with a more level head than she would have thought possible. Clara Barton's first piece of personal property was a sprightly, medium-sized white dog with silky ears and a short tail. His name was Button. Her affection for Button continued throughout her life. Of him, she said, my first individual ownership was Button. In personality, if the term be admissible, Button represented a sprightly, medium-sized, very white dog with silky ears, sparkling black eyes, and a very short tail. His bark spoke for itself. Button belonged to me. No other claim was instituted or ever had been. It was said that on my entrance into the family, Button constituted himself my guardian. He watched my first steps and tried to pick me up when I fell down. One was never seen without the other. He proved an apt and obedient pupil, obeying me precept upon precept, if not line upon line. He stood on two feet to ask for his food, and made a bow on receiving it, walked on three legs when very lame, and so on, after the manner of his crude instruction, went everywhere with me through the day, waited patiently while I said my prayers, and continued his guard on the foot of the bed at night. Button shared my board as well as my bed. After her first year's instruction at the hands of Colonel Stone, that gentleman ceased his connection with the common schools, 
and established what was known as the Oxford High School, an institution of great repute in its day. This left the district school to be taught by the members of the Barton household. For the next three years, Clara's sisters were her public school teachers in the autumn and spring, and her brother Stephen had charge of the school in the winter terms. Two things she remembered about those years. One was her preternatural shyness. She was sensitive and retiring to a degree that seemed to forbid all hope of her making much progress in study with other children. The other was that she had a fondness for writing verses, some of which her brothers and sisters preserved and used to tease her with in later years. One thing she learned outside the schoolroom, and she never forgot it. That was how to handle a horse. She inherited her mother's side-saddle, and though she protested against having to use it, she learned at an early age to lift and buckle it and to ride her father's horses. Meantime, her brothers grew to be men and bought out her father's two large farms. Her father purchased another farm of three hundred acres nearer the center of the town, a farm having upon it one of the forts used for security against the Indians by the original Huguenot settlers. She now became interested in history and added that to her previous accomplishments. At the age of eight, Clara Barton entered what was called high school, which involved boarding away from home. The arrangement met with only partial success on account of her extreme timidity. During the preceding winter, I began to hear talk of my going away to school, and it was decided that I be sent to Colonel Stone's high school, to board in his family and go home occasionally. This arrangement, I learned in later years, had a double object. I was what is known as a bashful child, timid in the presence of other persons, a condition of things found impossible to correct at home. In the hope of overcoming this undesirable mauvais hunte, it was decided to throw me among strangers. How well I remember my advent. My father took me in his carriage with a little dressing-case which I dignified with the appellation of trunk, something I had never owned. It was April, cold and bare. The house and schoolrooms adjoined, and seemed enormously large. The household was also large. The long family table with the dignified preceptor, my loved and feared teacher of three years, at its head, seemed to me something formidable. There were probably one hundred and fifty pupils daily in the ample schoolrooms, of which I was perhaps the youngest, except the colonel's own children. My studies were chosen with great care. I remember among them ancient history with charts. The lessons were learned to repeat by rote. I found difficulty both in learning the proper names and in pronouncing them, as I had not quite outgrown my lisp. 
One day I had studied very hard on the ancient kings of Egypt and thought I had everything perfect. And when the pupil above me failed to give the name of a reigning king, I answered very promptly that it was Potlamy. The colonel checked with a glance the rising laugh of the older members of the class and told me very gently that the P was silent in that word. I had, however, seen it all, and was so overcome by mortification for my mistake and gratitude for the kindness of my teacher that I burst into tears and was permitted to leave the room. I'm not sure that I was really homesick, but the days seemed very long, especially Sundays. I was in constant dread of doing something wrong, and one Sunday afternoon I was sure I had found my occasion. It was early spring. The tender leaves had put out, and with them the buds and half-open blossoms of the little cinnamon roses, an unfailing ornamentation of a well-kept New England home of that day. The children of the family had gathered in the front yard, admiring the roses and daring to pick each a little bouquet. As I stood holding mine, the heavy door at my back swung open, and there was the colonel in his long, light dressing gown and slippers, direct from his study. A kindly spoken, come with me, Clara, nearly took my last breath. I followed his strides through all the house, up the long flights of stairs, through the halls of the schoolrooms, silently wondering what I had done more than the others. I knew he was by no means wont to spare his own children. I had my handful of roses, so had they. I knew it was very wrong to have picked them, but why more wrong for me than the others? At length, and it seemed to me an hour, we reached the colonel's study, and there, advancing to meet us, was the Reverend Mr. Chandler, the pastor of our Universalist church, whom I knew well. He greeted me very politely and kindly, and handed the large open school reader which he held to the colonel, who put it into my hands, placed me a little in front of them, and pointing to a column of blank verse, very gently directed me to read it. It was an extract from Campbell's Pleasures of Hope, commencing, Unfading Hope When Life's Last Embers Burn. I read it to the end, a page or two. When finished, the good pastor came quickly and relieved me of the heavy book, and I wondered why there were tears in his eyes. The colonel drew me to him, gently stroked my short-cropped hair, went with me down the long steps, and told me I could go back to the children and play. I went much more easy in mind than I came, but it was years before I comprehended anything about it. My studies gave me no trouble, but I grew very tired, felt hungry all the time, but dared not eat, grew thin and pale. The colonel noticed it, and watching me at table, found that I was eating little or nothing, 
refusing everything that was offered me. Mistrusting that it was from timidity, he had food laid on my plate, but I dared not eat it. And finally, at the end of the term, a consultation was held between the colonel, my father, and our beloved family physician, Dr. Delano Pierce, who lived within a few doors of the school, and it was decided to take me home until a little older and wiser I could hope. My timid sensitiveness must have given great annoyance to my friends. If I ever could have gotten entirely over it, it would have given far less annoyance and trouble to myself all through life. To this day, I would rather stand behind the lines of artillery at Antietam or cross the pontoon bridge under fire at Fredericksburg than to be expected to preside at a public meeting. Again, Clara's instruction fell to her brothers and sisters. Stephen taught her mathematics, her sisters increased her knowledge of the common branches, and David continued to give her lessons in horsemanship. Stephen Barton, her father, was the owner of a fine black stallion, whose race of colts improved the blooded stock of Oxford and vicinity. When she was ten years old, she received a present of a Morgan horse named Billy. Mounted on the back of this fine animal, she ranged the hills of Oxford completely free from that fear with which she was possessed in the schoolroom. When she was thirteen years of age, her education took a new start under the instruction of Lucian Burleigh, who taught her grammar, composition, English literature, and history. A year later, Jonathan Dana became her instructor and taught her philosophy, chemistry, and writing. These two teachers she remembered with unfaltering affection. While Clara Barton's brother Stephen taught school, his younger brother David gave himself to business. He, no less than Stephen, was remembered affectionately as having had an important share in her education. He had taught her to ride, and she had become his nurse. When he grew well and strong, he took the little girl under his instruction and taught her how to do things directly and with expedition. If she started anywhere impulsively and turned back, he reproved her. She was not to start until she knew where she was going and why, and having started, she was to go ahead and accomplish what she had undertaken. She was to learn the effective way of attaining results, and having learned it, was to follow the method which promoted efficiency. He taught her to despise false motions, and to avoid awkward and ineffective attempts to accomplish results. He showed her how to drive a nail without splitting a board, and she never forgot how to handle the hammer and the saw. He taught her how to start a screw so it would drive straight. He taught her not to throw like a girl, but to hurl a ball or a stone with an underswing like a boy, and to hit what she threw at. He taught her to avoid granny knots and how to tie square knots. 
all this practical instruction she learned to value as among the best features of her education. One of her earliest experiences in accomplishing a memorable piece of work with her own hands came to her after her father had sold the two hill farms to his sons and removed to the farm on the highway nearer the village. It gave her her opportunity to learn the art of painting. This was more than the ability to dip a brush in a prepared mixture and spread the liquid evenly over a plain surface. It involved some knowledge of the art of preparing and mixing paints. She found joy in it at the time, and it quickened within her an aspiration to be an artist. In later years, and as part of her education, she learned to draw and paint, and was able to give instruction in watercolor and oil painting. It is interesting to read her own account of her first adventure into the field of art. The hill farms, for there were two, were sold to my brothers, who, entering into partnership, constituted the well-known firm of S. and D. Barton, continuing mainly through their lives. Thus I became the occupant of two homes, my sisters remaining with my brothers, none of whom were married. The removal to the second home was a great novelty to me. I became observant of all changes made. One of the first things found necessary on entering a house of such ancient date was a rather extensive renovation, for those days, of painting and papering. The leading artisan in that line in the town was Mr. Salvanus Harris, a courteous man of fine manners, good scholarly acquirements, and who, for nearly half a lifetime, filled the office of town clerk. The records of Oxford will bear his name and his beautiful handwriting as long as its records exist. Mr. Harris was engaged to make the necessary improvements. Painting included more then than in these later days of prepared material. The painter brought his massive white marble slab, ground his own paints, mixed his colors, boiled his oil, calcined his plaster, made his putty, and did scores of things that a painter of today would not only never think of doing, but would often scarcely know how to do. Coming from the newly built house where I was born, I had seen nothing of this kind done and was intensely interested. I must have persisted in making myself very numerous, for I was constantly reminded not to get in the gentleman's way, but I was not to be set aside. My combined interest and curiosity for once overcame my timidity, and encouraged by the mild, genial face of Mr. Harris, I gathered the courage to walk up in front and address him. Will you teach me to paint, sir? With pleasure, little lady. If Mama is willing, I should very much like your assistance. The consent was forthcoming, and so was a gown suited to my new work, and I reported for duty. 
i question if any ordinary apprentice was ever more faithfully and intelligently instructed in his first month's apprenticeship i was taught how to hold my brushes to take care of them allowed to help grind my paints shown how to mix and blend them how to make putty and use it to prepare oils and drawings and learned from experience that boiling oil was a great deal hotter than boiling water was taught to trim paper neatly to match and help to hang it to make the most approved paste and even varnished the kitchen chairs to the entire satisfaction of my mother which was triumph enough for one little girl so interested was i that i never wearied of my work for a day and at the end of a month looked on sadly as the utensils brushes buckets and great marble slabs were taken away there was not a room that i had not helped to make better there were no longer mysteries in paint and paper i knew them all and that work would bring calluses even on little hands when the work was finished and everything gone i went to my room lonesome in spite of myself. I found on my candle-stand a box containing a pretty little locket, neatly inscribed, to a faithful worker. No one seemed to have any knowledge of it, and I never gained any. One other memory of these early days must be recorded as having an immediate effect upon her, and a permanent influence upon her life while she was still a little girl she witnessed the killing of an ox and it seemed so terrible a thing to her that it had much to do with her lifelong temperance in the matter of eating meat she never became an absolute vegetarian when she sat at a table where meat was served and where a refusal to eat would have called for explanation and perhaps would have embarrassed the family she ate what was set before her as the apostle paul commanded but she ate very sparingly of all animal food and when she was able to control her own diet lived almost entirely on vegetables things that grew out of the ground she said were good enough for her a small herd of twenty-five fine milch cows came faithfully home each day with the lowering of the sun for the milking and extra supper which they knew awaited them with the customary greed of childhood i had laid claim to three or four of the handsomest and tamest of them and believing myself to be their real owner i went faithfully every evening to the yards to receive and look after them my little milk pail went as well and i became proficient in an art never forgotten one afternoon on going to the barn as usual i found no cows there all had been driven somewhere else as i stood in the corner of the great yard alone i saw three or four men the farmhands with one stranger among them wearing a long loose shirt or gown they were all trying to get a large red ox onto the barn floor to which he went very reluctantly at length 
they succeeded. One of the men carried an axe, and stepping a little to the side and back, raised it high in the air and brought it down with a terrible blow. The ox fell. I fell too. And the next I knew, I was in the house on a bed, and all the family about me, with the traditional camphor bottle bathing my head to my great discomfort. As I regained consciousness, they asked me what made me fall. I said, someone struck me. Oh, no, they said, no one struck you. But I was not to be convinced, and proceeded to argue the case with an impatient putting away of the hurting hands. Then what makes my head so sore? Happy ignorance. I had not then learned the mystery of nerves. I have, however, a very clear recollection of the indignation of my father, my mother had already expressed herself on the subject, on his return from town and hearing what had taken place. The hired men were lined up and arraigned for cruel carelessness. They had the consideration to keep the cattle away, he said, but allowed that little girl to stand in full view. Of course, each protested he had not seen me. I was altogether too friendly with the farmhands to hear them blamed, especially on my account, and came promptly to their side, assuring my father that they had not seen me and that it was no matter, I was all well now. But singularly, I lost all desire for meat, if I ever had it, and all through life to the present have only eaten it when I must for the sake of appearance, or as circumstances seem to make it the more proper thing to do. The bountiful ground has always yielded enough for all my needs and wants. End of chapter 5